0: I'll invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the scripture passage that we will consider this morning together as we make our way through this letter to the Ephesians. We find ourselves today in chapter 6, of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 13. And in fact, just as an introduction here today, we have come to the first part of the Apostle Paul's closing argument, so to speak, in this letter to the Ephesians. And here at the close, he appeals to us with great urgency. While he has comforted us time and time again in this letter with the good news of what God has done for us in Christ Paul does not want to leave us Christians in a place of complacent ease. No. Because of what Christ has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection, indeed God has forgiven us and adopted us as his beloved children. We have been saved by grace. But that does not mean that we are completely out of the woods Paul wants us to know that even though the victory is already secured for us by Jesus Christ and what he did, we are still in the midst of a spiritual war that is taking place. And therefore, we must not let our guard down ever. We must learn to stand firm in the faith because we will still daily face real opposition. And so with that said, let's give our close attention to the reading of God's word and imagine as it were that we are a company of soldiers and that this address is given to us by our commanding officer in the trenches of an ongoing battle around us and so let us hear God's word finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power put on the full armor of God To stand. So far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, loved ones, uh, in the year of 1521, so that's exactly 500 years ago. This year, a German preacher and Doctor of Theology. He stood up for the truth of God's word in the face of great opposition. You probably know this story. His name was Martin Luther, and the opposition that he faced came from the leaders of the very church that he was called and committed to serving, namely the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church and all of his loyal Minutemen. And so after challenging a variety of corrupt religious practices of his own day and calling out the Pope directly, Luther was in the crosshairs of the most powerful and influential men in Europe that could have easily commanded and ordered his own death. And so he was called to meet in the city of Worms uh, in 1521 in, in Germany for a trial, to be put on trial for what he had been teaching, what he had written and published. And Luther thought that at that trial, that the diet of worms that he would be able to defend his own positions there but instead they simply demanded that he recant from all of his heirs it was not a fair trial at all it was an ambush they didn't want to hear from him they wanted him to be silent and at the end of this trial Luther declared this unless I am convinced by the testimony of scripture or evident reason I am bound to the scriptures which I have adduced, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I neither can nor will revoke anything, since it is neither safe nor honest to act against conscience. And according to some tradition that is doubted by most scholars, Luther also said at the close, Here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. Now, whether or not Luther said that last line doesn't ultimately matter that much because that is exactly what he was doing before those men. There he stood, firm upon his convictions that he had founded upon in the scriptures themselves, and he faced serious opposition, trusting in God who helped him. And in response to this German preacher, the Pope condemned Luther as a heretic and an outlaw. And amazingly, it's a striking story really, Luther's friends, without even Luther himself knowing, arranged for him to be abducted on his way back home after this trial. Abducted, and they then took him into hiding in order to protect him, to spare his life. And he ended up living for another 25 years as he continued to preach, teach, and write with great vigor. And the people of Germany and around Europe began to eat up Luther's teachings, which greatly contributed to the larger movement that was taking place among the people against the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church, which we call today that movement the Reformation, of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. And so we see that God used men of faith like Martin Luther to reform and revitalize the church with the power of the gospel and of course as we consider the history of such men and even their lives clearly if you read the story of Luther or if you read his own writings such men were flawed sinners but God still used them and he wants to use us today as well and so today through this passage we hear the voice of Christ calling us to stand firm in the face of all opposition, trusting in God. And in our study of this passage, I want us to ask three main questions. Why? Why must we stand firm? What does standing firm look like? And how do we stand firm? So first, why? Why must we stand firm? And the answer is because we are up against the schemes of the devil. Notice that the Apostle Paul says here that Christians are up against the schemes of the devil. He says this in verse 12, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He's calling our attention to the spiritual dimension of the opposition that we face. It is easy enough for us to see physical opposition, tangible opposition. But here Paul is showing us that the real struggle is not against that flesh and blood. It is not against other humans, ultimately, but rather against superhuman powers that are behind the curtain of reality, so to speak. What does this mean? Well, it means that all opposition that Christians and the church face today from powerful men and women in the world is ultimately instigated and conducted by the devil and demonic forces and paul is helping us see that the, that even the most powerful people who oppose us in life are in a sense like puppets in the hands of the devil why does he tell us to focus on these spiritual enemies instead of human enemies well, this perspective, it keeps us from the temptation to take up physical weapons ourselves against other humans. Since we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, then it makes sense to not take out swords or guns to cut the flesh of other humans and cause them to bleed. And this is related to what Jesus himself told the apostle Peter the night that other humans came to arrest jesus the night when he was betrayed and what did peter do he was confused he didn't understand the spiritual dimension of what was going on and so peter withdrew his sword and cut off the ear of one of the servants he probably had bad aim i doubt he was actually intending to cut off the ear and how did jesus respond to peter well he said literally from god's word no more of this. Have I come in rebellion? Put your sword away. You see, Jesus didn't come to fight the puppets. He came to fight the puppeteer behind the curtain, the devil himself. And Jesus is telling us the same thing. Put away your swords. Don't fight against other humans in that way because in reality you are up against spiritual, superhuman powers that are at work in the world. And according to this perspective, when Luther himself stood up firmly upon God's truth in his word, when he was standing up to the Pope, well, he was ultimately standing up to someone else, right? The Pope, in a sense, was a puppet. Luther was standing up to the one pulling upon the puppet's strings, the devil himself. And loved ones, this spiritual battle is ongoing for us. The puppeteer is still at work today and we are up against the schemes of the devil. So what, what is the devil scheming? How does he scheme and plan his ways? Well, the word in the Greek here for schemes or scheming, refers to deceitful trickery. He is the great deceiver and the master trickster, right? And Jesus said he is a murderer and a fa- the father of all lies. The Apostle Paul in this text doesn't tell us exactly how the devil is scheming or what it looks like, but we don't really need to speculate. We don't need to guess what that is. All we have to do is look at the entirety of God's word to see how time and time again the devil has acted. How the devil has tricked and deceived and schemed others. And we see back, for example, in the Garden of Eden, that there the devil disguised himself as a serpent, whom Eve saw as a lowly, unsuspicious creature. He was disguised. And then the devil used deceptive words to cause her to distrust the goodness of God, her creator. You see, he didn't force Adam and Eve's hand to do anything. No, rather he instigated them to rebel with his words, with his trickery, with twisting. And time and time again in scriptures, we see this in a sense a summary of what God uh, is showing us that the devil does in his scheming. The devil uses smooth lies to work distrust and doubt into the hearts of people while at the same time awakening awakening in them evil desires. So he's sowing distrust and doubt, but also awakening evil desires. And he does that through words. How? Well, he planted weeds of doubt to choke out the truth that Adam and Eve knew. They had the truth, but the weeds of doubt choked that truth out. And then he subtly awakened a new evil desire within him him through his words. In Jesus, in his parables, he tells us that this is the same way that the devil still is at work today. He is the evil one who comes and snatches away the seeds of truth that were sown in the hearts of people. This means that the devil wants to suppress the truth, in all places and at all times and he uses all different kinds of means to keep that truth of God's word out of the hearts of people he doesn't want God's word to be planted therein and so he's going around snatching up that truth suppressing it as much as he can not only that Jesus says that the evil one is the enemy who sneaks in while everyone else is sleeping to sow weeds among the wheat what does that mean It means that not only is he suppressing the truth, but he is also promoting lies in the world through a variety of means and ways. How does the devil do that with us today? Well, just as he did with Eve in the garden today, he disguises himself as well. He puts on costumes to be a trickster, right? And he finds people who are both talented and unconverted, and he uses them as his prophets, as mouthpieces of Satan. And this happens both in the world and in the church, we find. Uh, God's Word tells us that this is happening in the world and in the church. He has his puppets in the world and in the church. For example, he uses rich and powerful, influential people in the world through their lives and their words. The evil one is seducing the masses in order to so distrust and doubt into the hearts of people so that they would follow instead their evil passions. But that's not all. He also has his puppets in the church. The devil handpicks charismatic men and women to be false teachers, wolves in sheep clothing. And these false teachers twist the truth of God's Word to try and make it more palatable for rebels, tickling their ears. If he can get people feeling comfortable and secure about their eternal destiny, happy and content and at ease, sitting in the pews of churches where the gospel is never preached, well, that's that's the best thing that Satan could ever want. Lest they hear the good news, lest they hear the need of grace of God and turn away from their evilness and receive the gospel. And so we see that he has puppets in the world and in the church. And these are those of whom the Apostle Paul speaks in 2 Timothy, where he says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myth myths. You see they're puppets of Satan in the world and in the church today, twisting God's truth, suppressing God's truth, and sowing distrust in the hearts of people. And this is what we are up against. This is why Christ is calling us to stand firm in the face of such opposition. But what does that exactly mean? What does it mean to stand to take our stand against these schemes of the devil. And that's our second point, the stance of faith. You know, it's interesting that in our spiritual warfare, Christ calls us to stand, to stand. Because normally, when we think of great battles, whether they be battles of antiquity or battles that are modern in today's world, they are not won, those battles, by standing Those battles are won by advancing. And so why, why then does he call us to stand firm and, in a a sense, not to advance in this battle? Well, two reasons. First, to keep us from engaging in a militaristic conquest of the world for geopolitical dominance. He doesn't want us to go in that kind of battle. Again, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And if you know some of church history or world history, you know that Christians have done this very thing. For instance, we can think of the bloody crusades that occurred in the medieval ages from the 11th to the 14th century, but they were completely wrong in doing that. We are not called to take up arms in advance against the nations in a spirit of conquest. No, we are called to stand firm in our faith in a spirit of perseverance and endurance. So that's the first reason why we're called to stand and not advance. The second one is this, because this warfare, this battle, is not ours to win. We are not called to advance in the fight lest we lose. As if the victory depended upon us, we are called to stand firm in the fight because the victory is already ours in Christ. Our fight is with the devil who is powerful and deceptive, yes, but He has already been given the death blow by Jesus Christ. We can think of it in this way. The devil is like a strong boxer that has already been knocked down by Christ. And after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that historical victory over sin and death, well, the devil is weak on his feet. He's swooning in the ring and ready to be knocked down for good nonetheless even in that state he is still too strong for us to knock out jesus will do that in the end in the final round of the battle and so as we wait for christ to bring that final final blow to satan we are called to stand firm to do all that we can to stay on our feet. The word that Paul uses here for struggle is interesting. It's not the word that was used in, in reference to heavily armed warfare. Rather, the word here is used is pale in Greek, which was used to refer to the sport fighting that was very common in their day, which was a kind of combination of wrestling and boxing very similar it seems to UFC mixed martial arts those fights today and so using this illustration Paul is saying don't let the enemy throw you to the ground stand your ground withstand his attacks now what does this mean practically well to stand firm in your faith you need solid ground to stand upon right In other words, you need to know what you believe and why you believe it from God's word. When we look back into history as recorded in the Bible or also church history, we see that those who did stand their ground in the midst of opposition, in the face of their enemies, they were the ones who knew God's word the best. They knew the ground that they standed upon. Jesus himself Withstood the schemes of the devil in the wilderness when he was tempted. How? By quoting the scriptures. The Apostle Paul withstood the religious and political leaders of his day by knowing God's word like the back of his hand. And the reformers, like Luther, stood their ground because they had studied God's word. Again, like Luther said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of scripture, I am bound to the scriptures, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. You see, this is the stance of faith that we too must have. We constantly need to examine our convictions. We need to ensure that we have a good footing in the word of God. And as Paul says, we live in an evil day. Temptation, deceit, and spiritual opposition surround us, and therefore we need to do everything we can in order to stand firm. In Christians, this means that we need to be diligent in our study of the word of God. We cannot be complacent, especially in our information age as we're bombarded with marketing and, and information all day long. But We need to be imbibing the word of God and taking that in all the more. We can't let our hands drop in the battle making ourselves vulnerable for attack. We can't be caught off, off, uh, off guard and let our foot slip. We need to be alert and assured of the truth that we believe. And that is what we must do. We must stand firm because we face the schemes of the devil. But how do we do it? And that is our third point, the strength of the Lord. Paul begins this section saying, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And this call to be strong, it implies two things. It implies, first of all, that it is possible to be weak. It is possible to be weak. And secondly, it is possible to draw more and more strength from the Lord. And maybe you feel weak today. Maybe that's where you are in your Christian faith. You feel weak, depleted, like you have no strength. Well, I have good news for you, Christian. God offers you his very own strength and power again today. In fact, as we know from the Apostle Paul elsewhere, his power is made known through our weakness because we can't be strong in our own pride and also in the strength of the Lord. We first need to be humbled, and God needs to humble us and empty us of the pride that we have in the flesh so that we would have pride and strength in him and his mighty power. And so if you feel weak, it's good. It's good. That means you are ready to receive his strength. And so receive it. Take it in. Now, Paul, he gives us a metaphor, or an illustration to help us understand how we are to receive this strength from the Lord. He calls us to put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the schemes of God the devil. That purpose clause there, so that, indicates something. That without the armor of God, without his strength upholding us, we will not be able to stand against the devil's schemes. And so we need his strength to stand. We need the armor of God. Not only that, the call to put on the full armor of God implies something else, that it is ours for the taking. It is a gift of God. The armor of God is given to every Christian. If you believe in Jesus, it is part of your new wardrobe that you have received when you were born again. As we saw earlier in the book, uh, this letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul speaks about the new self that we were given when the Spirit caused us to be born again. But that's not all that we have received. Not only a new self, but in addition to our new nature by the Spirit, we have also been given this full armor of God. But what is this full armor of God? Well, naturally, the the Ephesians in the Roman Empire would have thought and visualized the, the armory and the weaponry of the Roman soldiers that were around them in their city that walked their streets. But Paul here is also referring to imagery that's found in the Old Testament, especially the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah, we find out that the armor of the Lord is not only something that God gives to us as a gift, but it is also something that God himself has put on. It's amazing. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 59, Isaiah 59, 15 to 19, where we find a key passage here that helps us see the Old Testament context for this full armor of God again Isaiah 59:15 to 19 We're there in Isaiah 59:15 to 19 the Lord says through his prophet truth is nowhere to be found and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice He saw that there was no one, and he he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. And so his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate, and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance, and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies, and retribution to his foes he will repay the islands their due from the west people will fear the name of the lord and from the rising of the sun they will revere his glory for he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the lord drives along so here in the prophet isaiah we find that god himself was promising to put on this full armor of righteousness in order to execute the justice that we have left undone in the absence of worthy fighters to conquer evil and restore the goodness of God's creation and bring back peace to his world God himself promised to enter into the ring enter into the fight God promised that he would put on the armor and fight the ancient foe himself the enemy, the devil. And when did this happen? It happened when the Son of God came in our humanity, born of the Virgin Mary, and Jesus, God in human flesh, entered into the ring, of the greatest heavyweight fight of all of human history. God Himself fought against sin, death, and the devil for us, and for his glory. Let us ask this question. In that battle, did the armor of the Lord protect Jesus from the violent blows of humanity, the shame, the humiliation, and physical death? No, it didn't. It did not protect him from that, but it did protect him from the evil one, Clothed by the Holy Spirit and the strength of his Father, Jesus, time and time again, every moment withstood the temptations of the devil and stayed steadfast in obedience to his Father until the end. He stood his ground in righteousness and truth all the way until his final breaths on the cross. And when he died, when he died, it looked as if he had been knocked down for good. But then three days later, He rose again, victorious from the grave. Victorious, triumphant over sin, death, and the devil. Death could not hold him down. And loved ones, God did this for us. For us, through Christ, to give us both the victory over sin, death, and the devil, and also to give us now, as a gift, this full armor of God. The very same spiritual armor that Jesus wore is ours for the taking. In a sense, we are putting on Christ himself, his righteousness. The full armor that he put on is now ours as we are united to Christ by faith. And we are putting on the armor of the one who has already won the battle for us. How do we put it on? Well, imagine that at this Christmas season someone gives you a full set of armor real medieval armor right and weapons for Christmas as your present a random and strangely cool gift that perhaps you know Uncle Ted gives you for Christmas right I would I would accept that gift and if anyone wants to give it to me that'd be awesome so say you store it in your closet right you need to have some space for it now if one day you decide to put on that armor you want to put it on how would you do it well you'd follow a series of steps right you'd first go to the closet you'd grab it and then you'd put it on one piece at a time which is easy enough for us to imagine and loved ones that is how we must put on god's armor that we have in christ that is our gift to us through christ by his spirit it might as well be in our closet at home, or better yet, it is with us wherever we go as a kind of spiritual travel bag that Christ has given us. And so, in the mornings and midday and evenings, when you are especially oppressed by circumstances in life and feel weak, then go in faith to the promise of God's armor for you. Go to it. Think upon that promised reality like a spiritual closet door, to open it and find your armor that God has given you. And then lay a hold of it, grab it, take it up. How? By meditating on the promise. Chewing it over in your mind. Drawing out the implications of what God has promised for you in Christ. And put on, in that sense, each part of the armor that God has given you. And as you put on each of the armor, apply it to your heart soul mind and strength to do that you might want to read aloud each of the verses in the following passage that we that we have here in Ephesians verbally affirming what you believe about it and asking God to fasten it upon you by his Holy Spirit Love ones this is how we are to stand firm against the schemes of the devil not in our own strength for we are weak but in the strength and mighty power of God, with the full armor of God that he has given us. And truly, as Paul says, we live in an evil day, in the opposition to truth. It is strong, and we all know that to be true. And so let us rise to the occasion, loved ones. Hear me out. Let us rise to the occasion. Let us, by faith in the victory of Christ for us, Follow in the footsteps of those who have gone before us and let us continue to say with them, here we stand, so help us, God. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that despite the growing opposition and the continuous opposition to your church and Christians in the world today, that you have given us the great gift of your full armor so that we might stand firm and we rejoice that as we stand and as you call us to be strong in you, that we stand in Christ, the one who has already triumphed for us over sin, death, and the devil, the one who took upon himself the full armor of God and died in our place in order to conquer for us, in order to forgive us our sins and to strengthen us by his grace. And so, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us so that we too, like those before us, would stand firm in our faith until the end, until Christ comes and knocks out once and for all ages the devil. We look forward to that glorious day of his resurrection and we ask, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, loved ones, let's stand and sing a song of application. 540, 540 soldiers of Christ arise. Let's stand and sing. 540.